If you have a Bible with you, you could turn it to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is 28 verses long, so I'm going to pop around a bit. Uh, I feel like this is one of those passages that sort of speaks for itself, and my job is just to stand out of the way and and just make you read it. Uh, but I, I guess that's probably not the best use of, of our time. Um, I feel that more and more about passages, that if you just... Like it speaks for itself if you just if you just read the thing, um, but we'll pop around in Psalm 73 uh, today, and uh, we'll hopefully learn learn a wee bit. Um, I think that the Bible presupposes that we need our vision reoriented. Uh, I see several of you wearing glasses, which um, I am subject to the same affliction, um, but. We need to have our vision reoriented. There are so many competing uh, pictures, so many competing voices in the world, so many images that flood our minds and our imaginations. And one of the things that the Bible does is sort of reorients us back to a true vision of God, a true vision of ourselves, a true vision of his world. And scripture does this in a lot of different ways. So if you were reading Paul, for example, you find there's a lot of logic and a lot of reasoning that Paul will say, if this, then this. If you have believed in Christ, then this is the life that should follow. So Paul reorients our, our vision using logic and reasoning. But if you were to read Revelation or parts of Daniel or Ezekiel or other prophets, you're giving a lot of images. It's not logical. You're talking about dragons and swallowing rivers and, and all of these sort of spectacular images that are meant to snap us out of our days. Right? You, you look at the, at the dragon, you look at the beast in the book of Revelation, and the point is that you're meant to be snapped out, to reorient your vision around what's true, to wake up, to attend to what God is saying. So scripture does this in a lot of different ways. Now, Psalms do the same thing. Uh, their poetry, and they, as poetry, engage the heart and the mind in a different way than other literature. So if we were to take one simple example, we're coming up on Valentine's Day. I know that everybody's bringing their A-game. Um, but the logic, reasoning, it, it doesn't quite capture the heart. So here's an example of what I might think is kind of a Valentine's Day fail. So it's an algebraic equation that finishes a heart on the graph. And for added bonus, it is tattooed on somebody's arm. Uh, now, I have to confess that my nerdiness does know boundaries, and I didn't actually graph to see if this came out as a heart. But if you were to receive this as your Valentine, you would very it would be very unlikely that you'd say, wow, you have just really captured my heart with that algebraic equation. Now, are algebraic equations useful? Yeah, they are, believe it or not. Um, they are quite useful, but they don't capture the heart and the imagination as much as like a sonnet, like an original sonnet that you wrote for your sweetheart before Tuesday. I mean, that would really do the trick. Your, some of your original poetry. 
I swallowed an ice cube with it. So now I just have to... Um, my embarrassment knows no boundaries. I'm being paid back for the gum thing. Which I did have to rush up and like, uh, spit it out quick before Iwana kicks us out. Um, so anyway... Psalms do this in a different way. They capture the mind, they capture the heart, they capture the imagination uh, through images, through poetry, and it's just a slightly different thing. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to start with just a 10,000 foot overview of the book of Psalms, because there's 150 of them, and the snow's not starting till later, apparently, so we got plenty of time. We can we just crank it out. This is a different storm, though. This is the one that's coming in from the coast. The one later is the one that's going to slam. This is nothing. It's not until later on that we're going to get the real stuff. So don't, don't fret. Um, so... If I could just drastically oversimplify the book of Psalms, I would call it the book of the two ways. On the one hand, beginning in Psalm 1, you have the way of the righteous and you have the way of the wicked. So the way of the righteous throughout the entire book of Psalms is described in in different ways, but the overall image that you get is that it's a life that's marked by stability. It's marked by blessing. It's marked by wisdom. It's marked by discernment. And it's an overall better quality of life, right? If you had to choose between a stable life and an unstable life, most of us would choose a stable life, right? If we had to choose between being wise and being foolish, if it were just that simple, we would choose wisdom instead of foolishness. And it doesn't mean that they're perfect, right? So the righteous, as the Bible describes them, they're not perfect. They still openly confess their sin before the Lord, but the difference is that they're oriented toward the Lord in faith, right? So they're not perfect. They're not those obnoxious plastic people uh, that, that are perfect without a flaw in the universe, you know, prom kings and queens, all of them. They're not that, right? So don't, don't think that they're necessarily perfect for all their righteousness. But they are oriented to the Lord even in their imperfections. And when they sin, and they do sin, uh, they confess and they seek to make it right by the Lord. So again, they show by their actions that they're oriented toward the Lord. That's the vision of the righteous. By contrast, the way of the wicked is marked by instability, They're, throughout the Psalms, described as rash. They're described as arrogant. They're described as uh, foolish. And what's worse than the behavior is the fact that they persist in this way. Now that's the difference. Whether or not they engage in the behavior willingly or unwillingly is a matter of debate, and that's fine. But the wicked are defined by the fact that they persist in their unrighteous behavior. So the righteous, even when they do sin, they're oriented toward the Lord in confession, in repentance. The wicked run into the wall, and instead of stopping running into the wall, they persist running into the wall. And while they're running into the wall, they claim to be God while they're running into the wall. That's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. So the difference between the two ways in the Psalms is really just the disposition of their heart. 
So the righteous, as they set their gaze upon the Lord, when they sin, their sin bothers them. Right? Have you ever been there? Uh, that you sin, you're imperfect, but you're not proud of it. That's the difference. So one can be righteous and imperfect at the same time. So the difference is the disposition of the heart. A righteous person does not rush headlong into defending their sin or telling you why they're right in the way that they acted or even arguing it. They're not defensive. They're soft-hearted. They're tender-hearted before the Lord and toward other people. They can willingly acknowledge their sin and they can confess it. The righteous... Uh, excuse me, the unrighteous are the opposite. They can't do that. They're hard-hearted. They're defensive. They persist. They're, they make excuses for their sin. That's really the difference between the two ways. And the Psalms contain, for us, a full range of the human condition. And it's just a beautiful expression of the full range of the human condition. We often give just really sanitized versions in our expression of faith. And if you've, if you've read the book of Psalms, it's kind of a mess. They're all over the place. You have royal coronation Psalms where the king is, is crowned. You have personal laments, right? So Jesus on the cross was quoting Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's out of the book of Psalms. So there are individual laments where the psalmist wonders where God is in the midst of unrighteousness and injustice. There's corporate laments where the nation of Israel wonders where God is in their national circumstances as they are in exile hundreds of miles away from their home. They express that to the Lord. They don't hide it. They don't pretend that it's all good. They don't do that. They honestly express before the Lord their angst. And you have the full range of people just dealing with raw emotion, confessing their sin honestly, confessing it to God, not just throwing it out there uh, into, the, into the universe. But you have lots of expressions of people struggling to trust God people who are still confessing the faithfulness of God's character even when they don't feel it. So to me, um, this complex human story that we're a part of is just given a voice in the Psalms. And I can't give you the entire book of Psalms in a nutshell, but that's the nutshell that I give. Um, what I'd like to do today is just to look at one Psalm in particular, Psalm 73 and to explore how this can help us to think more clearly about God, uh, about ourselves, and about the world. So, if we're in Psalm 73, the psalm begins in this spirit of confession. So if you look at verse 1, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The, the first word of the second verse, anybody got it? But, now, if you remember... Conjunction, junction. What's your function? And but. What's the function of but? It's a contrast. Right. 
So, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but I'm not actually one of those. I can acknowledge God's goodness and faithfulness to those who are pure in heart. I just don't happen to be one of them. Pretty quickly, if you uh, look up at the screen, verse 3, he says, I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Now, this is an honest confession. But he sees the arrogant for what they are. He confesses that he envies them, but he does not try to justify or excuse his view. As though he's talking about a righteous person. Uh, He doesn't walk down the path, well, maybe they're really not that bad if we just give them a chance. No, he actually calls them what they are. I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He doesn't try to justify his envy. He confesses it. He sees them for what they are, and he's honest about what's going on in his own heart. I think that's really the key for me. He's honest about what is going on in his heart. I wouldn't ever envy an arrogant person. Really? I, I love you guys. Um, but sometimes when I'm in community with other Christians, I'm thinking, am I the only one who experiences the depth of the darkness of the human heart? <laughs> like, like, wow, that was just so easy. They recognized sin and they, they stopped. I can't do that. I don't know why. I mean, I, I need somebody to help me out on this. Um, maybe Jesus. But the, um, the psalmist here is honest in his confession. And he's acknowledging that he's not pure in heart. And I think if we were honest, we'd have to say the same thing. And later on in the psalm, his confession continues. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. Uh, time out. The psalmist here, now this is in the Bible, confesses that his heart was grieved and that his spirit was bitter. What this says about God, actually, I'll I'll ask you, what does this say about God? Wouldn't you think this one would end up on the cutting room floor? I don't know if we can have that in our Bible. I mean, it's awfully raw, isn't it? The psalmist can actually express a bitter spirit to the Lord. This is in our Bibles. We can direct these things to the Lord. We don't have to struggle and be plagued by doubt as we're trying to face in other directions. The Psalms open up this entire way for us to be honest with the Lord and to say, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So what is the psalmist confessing? Not only that they envied the arrogant, but that when their heart was grieved and their spirit embittered, they were senseless and ignorant. A brute beast before the Lord. Senseless and ignorant. And what I most appreciate here is the open open and honest confession. There's no hint of an excuse. 
Um, just the ready acknowledgement that when his heart was grieved and his spirit was bitter, he did some foolish things. I was senseless and ignorant. Now, could somebody help me to fill out a portrait of what's senseless and ignorant? I know that in, in this culture, it's just going to be such a challenge. Uh, give me an example. Road rage. Right. How many accidents have been caused by senseless and ignorant behavior while driving? I don't know the number. I'm just guessing that it's more than five. Okay? That's a great example. Anyone here ever been carried away on the road? Just Steve. Okay, Steve and John. Thank you, brothers. Don, all right, good. Joe? No idea what you're talking about. Okay. Now... What, what we're doing here, though, is like the TV is not what's being confessed here. The psalmist is not saying, my society was senseless and ignorant. Who has two thumbs and is senseless and ignorant? This guy, right? So he's confessing. It's not them out there. It's us in here. So give me another example of senseless and ignorant. Okay, I can't imagine any examples in the last week, but I, I'm given to understand that there are people who, yeah, right, that you, we, we operate in all kinds of arrogant ways, presuming we know something that we don't. Or, we're actually going to talk about that in a couple minutes. Yep, good question. Yeah, but at the same time, um, I, I don't know that he's totally blaming God. Um, and if it's honest, one of the neat things about the Psalms, which I think is very different from our culture, is that it's an honest confession by people who know that they're wrong and that God's right. So they're not whining. The psalmists are not whining. They always end in a place of resolution. That they're either confessing the faithfulness of God's character uh, or they're confessing their own sin. But they never end with this whole like, I'm just being real, whatever that means. Um, which is usually an excuse for, for whining and just teeing off. The psalmists are never teeing off. They're trying to come to resolution. And when you're oriented toward the Lord in that way, you're looking to come to resolution. So, um, if, even if we can't come up with some specifics, maybe when our hearts are grieved and we have a bitter spirit, we operate in senseless and ignorant ways. Um, and he's not trying to justify himself before the Lord. But he goes on to describe the arrogant. Their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. 
So this quote, how can God know does the most high have knowledge? That's just the height of arrogance. The person who persists running into the wall claiming that they're God, um, that's, that to me is the epitome of arrogance. So the psalmist goes on for the first you know, 12 verses describing this, this way of the arrogant. And as I mentioned a little bit before, the psalmist is always looking to come to resolution. And the psalm actually answers that question. What is it that's the reset button? What is it that is going to help to reorient the psalmist's vision? He's experiencing this envy. He's looking at the way of the arrogant. He's looking at the way of the wicked. And he's thinking, that's a pretty enticing thing. They don't seem to be having any real problems. And one is tempted to follow that way which is what the psalmist says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. So it's not too long before the psalmist comes to the place where they ask, was there any point in following God at all? As I look through this lens that the world offers, was there ever really a point to following God in the first place? And that's an honest question. Not one born of teeing off on God or accusing or anything. He actually chose, in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. It seems like kind of an odd phrase. I think it speaks to Joe's question. He actually kept himself silent in that bitterness. Like, I'm going to shipwreck your children if I start talking like this. So I chose um, not to speak that way. I think is what the verse means. But again, it's an honest confession. You see the same kind of thing in Romans 7. You see the same thing in Psalm 51 where Paul or the psalmist can be who they are before the Lord and they can confess that. So what is it exactly that causes the reset button? Because we don't just want to wallow in the pit of misery. Um, what is it that resets the psalmist? Verse 17 until I came into the sanctuary of God. That's it. That's the answer. What happens in the sanctuary of God? What is it that has such power that the psalmist can, for many, many, many verses, describe the way of the arrogant, how they're tempted to follow that, how they really have a lot of angst about that, until I came in to the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God is the dwelling place of the Almighty. It's the particular place in Israel where God is pleased to dwell in the midst of his people. That's why when the temple goes down, it is devastating to them nationally. That is where God lives. So I believe that the psalmist, as he reflects on his experience, he eventually comes to the place of acknowledging God's presence. Once I stand in God's presence, then all of a sudden I see things for what they are. I perceived their end. Now there is the arrogant and the wicked. I perceived their end. Once I stood in the sanctuary of God, then I saw things correctly. So ideally, when one stands in God's presence in the assembly of his people, offering praise and offering sacrifice, 
and being continually reminded of what is real in the universe, the psalmist seems his previous concerns as trite. I don't know if you remember the old song. It's one of my favorites. Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's exactly what's being described here. That compared to standing in the presence of God, all of these other concerns are nothing. It doesn't mean that they're not real, but when we reorient our hearts and minds, we are able to see them for what they are. And we view them from a standpoint of faith and not angst. We don't have to be embittered by our circumstances. We can acknowledge God's faithfulness in the midst of them. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, how silly some things can seem when you bring it up in the presence of a faithful Christian, right? And I hope and pray that you have somebody who is serving that role in your life. But when you confess some of these things, it's not that you're confessing it in the presence of God, but you see how trite and how silly they are when you bring them out into the light of day. How silly is it to envy the arrogant? And it's almost like at this point, Standing in the sanctuary of God, the psalmist has all of these images flood back to him. All of the signs of God's faithfulness, all of the signs of God's generosity, how God throughout Israel's history has brought the proud low and has exalted the humble. So as he stands in the sanctuary, that's what he experiences. And in light of that, everything can make sense. I may not like my circumstances, but I can acknowledge that God is God over all. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who will hold human beings accountable for their behavior. And offering praise and sacrifice is our act of acknowledgement of God's lordship over everything. This is why worship is so important. And in... I don't know if I'm still a missionary in New England or when I technically become one of you, uh, but this culture of going to church is just not what the Bible offers. Like you're going to see a speech, hear some good songs, go to a concert. It's not what worship is. And if I have something of an edge to me this morning, that's kind of what it's about. Real worship that is centered around exalting God as the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of all things, where we're free to confess our sins, to be reconciled to God and to one another, it just makes everything else obsolete. Once you shift to the performance element, it ceases to be worship that is going to reorient our vision. And as I look at the church in U.S. culture, I wonder how much of it is we, we're not really that different because we have this going to church mentality. I want to hear 
I want to hear a concert. I want a big crowd so that I don't have to be accountable to any people. They won't even know if I leave. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I want. I want to hear a winsome speech. Uh, I, I want to feel inspired. Uh, that's all fine stuff, I suppose, until you introduce the Bible into that equation. None of that is going to undo the problems that we have. None of that is going to reorient the people of God. So uh, I think I can speak for my wife on this one. This is why we're so militant about the content of worship songs. That if we're not regularly acknowledging God as the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer of all things, the worship is just watered down. And who are we singing about? We're singing about us. And we're the problem. Until we have something that snaps us out of that, a bigger, grander vision of what's real in the world, we're just going to be stuck in the place that we are. So that's where the psalmist comes to resolution. And I have to say I was surprised and more than a bit disturbed that it was church. Until I came into the sanctuary. But this is what church should look like. And then the psalmist continues on, having been broken down by being in the sanctuary of God and having all of those images flood back, he comes to the place where he doesn't have to confess anymore, but he's able to give this honest profession. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the psalmist, looking at his circumstances, confessing his envy of the arrogant, of the wicked, is finally broken down to the point where he can say, what do I have but God? And I think maybe one of the problems is that we're so capable and we have access to so many resources and this will just be honest confession for me, I can't say that. I can't say that earth has nothing I desire besides you. Life's good. I tell my kids about 80 times a week, there are real problems in the world and we are not experiencing any of them. So I don't know if, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to tie it off and leave it there. But I can't honestly say that I have nothing in heaven but the Lord. I have to be honest about that. I've not been broken down to that point. But it becomes almost this thing that we need to restate again and again. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion. So if there was nothing left... And all I had was the Almighty, that that would be a good thing. And even the earth, for all of its goodness and all of its beauty, it has nothing that we ultimately desire. Uh, we're all going to experience the failure of our bodies, some sooner than others. That was a joke. Thank you, Lily. But that's the thing, right? We're all going to experience that at some point. 
but we can all equally confess that God is the strength of our heart. God alone is our portion forever. So he offers praise for the Lord's deeds as he goes on. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. What a simple thing. What a simple thing to say that in the midst of all of our technological empires, our instant access to everything and our endless impatience about all of it, it's good to be near God. When we come together for corporate worship as a community of faith, it is good to be near God where we can experience real worship where we can experience real confession, real fellowship with each other, where we actually talk about what God's doing in our hearts and what's going on in our hearts that maybe isn't so great. Um, a community like that, I think, is, is what the psalmist is talking about. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. And then all of a sudden, the evangelism thing that's a burden because it's embarrassing it's just the overflow of talking about the goodness and the generosity of God. Just imagine that you came into this place and you were so charged by worship, by being in God's presence, by being in the presence of his people, that actually ministering to others was just the overflow. It's not like, oh man, I gotta go talk to my neighbor and... I'm supposed to tell them about Jesus because there's a sermon series about doing that and it's all of a sudden it becomes a suffocating burden. Imagine if it was just the extension of what we did. All in the midst of honest confession about our own shortcomings. And this is, uh, this is not the end. This resolution that the psalmist comes to, one of the things I've been dealing with a lot lately is there's never a stopping point. So, Jeremiah and Ashley, they just crossed the finish line. And when you cross that finish line, you're starting another race. Like, there's no stopping point. It's not like the end of a semester, like, okay, finals are done, I'm moving on to a whole new set of classes. Ashley has crossed the finish line, and then the race just started again, right? And then it's on and on and on and on. This is not the end. Life is not a static thing. I can't say this one time and then I'm good. Never again. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. We know that life is more complicated than that. We have to continually re-choose at specific moments to confess present sin and to resolve to follow Jesus faithfully again. Confessing this one time, uh, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't do it. There are hills and there are valleys. There are times when we're zealous for the Lord and we're just singularly focused on doing his will. Nothing else matters. And then there are other times, uh, the Psalms attest to this, our experience attests to this, when we're distracted and we're restless. You can be honest about that and put it before the Lord in confession. The Psalms offer an encouraging picture of how we all, uh, excuse me, how all of that can be lived before God, that none of that has to be hidden uh, from him. And better yet, it doesn't leave us there. It always calls us to be more. Scripture always calls us to be more than what we are. 
It's not a system imposed upon us so that we can do less and have joyless existence and get to go to heaven at the end. That would be terrible. It actually is always opening us up into just this expansive universe. The abundant life that Jesus talked about. It's always more. So one of the great things about the Psalms is that we're invited to walk the same road. We get to live out the journey of faith as it gives voice to the deepest desires of our hearts. The really sad thing about the book of Psalms, though, is that it's a book that has to be walked. It can't be described. It can't be talked about. So if you've ever heard Jim Edmondson talk about the Appalachian Trail, he talks about it when we hike, and it's a great thing. And I can connect with him on that level and say, yeah, that's awesome. I have never walked that far in my life. I I can't connect because it's not a road that I've walked. It's something that has to be experienced. The Psalms is that way. You can't just look at someone else doing it and think, oh yeah, that's, that's it. It's something that has to be experienced. It's not just something that can be talked about or admired. So, Um, we, like the psalmist, have to come to the place where we can open our hearts and we can let the Lord do what the psalmist prays for in a different psalm in 139, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's an honest prayer uh, that the psalmist offers to the Lord. Let's pray.